What's going on, everybody? Welcome to another edition of the LWE Podcast. This is LWE Lee Collins uh, bringing you another interesting, hopefully entertaining, and somewhat informative, I would say, a podcast interview with uh, another person who I have a lot of respect for. Uh, he is a 30-plus year veteran of the media. He print digital broadcast. Um, he's wore a lot of hats. We're going to talk about several of those today, but I want to welcome in uh, Dan Scott to the podcast. Dan, man, how are you doing, brothers? Good to talk to you. Well, I was doing good, Lee, until you put all that pressure on me, talking about being entertaining and informative and all that stuff. I hope you got <laughs> something today. <laughs> well, I figured if if I don't, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll compromise. We'll find a way to make this thing bounce out. Smoke uh, and hopefully. mirrors, baby. Smoke and mirrors. That's, that's right. Um, first and foremost, man, uh, hope you're doing well. I mean, it's – as far as from from what we kind of do, I, you do it more of a, a regular basis than I do. But uh, just covering sports and anything, how good is it to see crowds and have live events back going full speed? It's really incredible. Uh, Tom Van Hoy, who who does Furman football and, and basketball with me, also does the Greenville Drive with me, which which we are in. And you know, we did basketball by and large this past uh, November through March with empty arenas you know or, or maybe just a couple of hundred people in most places we went football uh this spring at the fcs level um you know in, in a sixteen thousand seat paladin stadium we may have had a large crowd of about two thousand people so it, it was obviously an adjustment we were glad to be there we were glad to be doing the games uh, but it, it was it was odd not having people there. So we get to the first homestand uh, to open the minor league baseball season in May. And even with floor field uh, opening for that first 12 game, about half capacity. So roughly 2,500 people there, there, maybe a little more, maybe a little less inside that first 12 games because it's a more intimate setting. Um, there was just a, a buzz, the, the crowd buzz. And Tom and I talked about it multiple times during the first three or four games, how, you know, you could just just be quiet for a minute and let the crowd mic pick up the, the buzz from the crowd and how great it was to have people back in the ballpark. And then, you know, we're, we're, you and I are recording this on Thursday. Uh, Drive played last night, Wednesday night, and had a crowd of over 5,100. Uh, absolute wow. field so yeah it, it was it's just fantastic to have people back and getting to some sense of of normalcy although I, I tell people lee all i really want to do is i want to get back to my normal level of abnormality and if i can do that i'll be happy <laughs> well i was fixing to say i mean it's, it's bad enough that we had a, a global worldwide pandemic to throw all of our schedules off and send everything kind of in a tailspin but um here you are getting to uh, do spring football and now taking a deep breath and getting ready for fall football. I imagine that might've been as, as abnormal as anything else you've done here recently. The, the abnormal thing about it was obviously the time of year sure. that it was being played. Once we got into the routine, the routine was like any other football season. And, and by that, for me, as, as the, the play-by-play voice, for Furman, I've got certain things I do on certain days sure. during game week. Like every Thursday, we do the pregame interviews with head coach Clay Hendricks and his coordinators uh, and, and record a couple of other features. 
we do. Um, I, you know, there, there are certain days that I work on my spotting boards and, and, and start doing my, my research on the opposing team. Uh, if, if it's a, a rare night where it's an overnight game, you know, we travel on Friday. Normally we're traveling up early on Saturday morning for a game to get at the, the stadium, you know, four hours before game time, three hours at least before airtime. So from that standpoint, once we got into the season, that much of it was routine. Uh, and it felt normal. It was just playing in a different time of year. And then quite honestly, having the specter hanging over your head of not knowing from week to week if you're actually going to get to play because of teams that were still fighting certain levels of, of COVID. And, and we had um, we had a game, our final game against Wofford, which they just opted out of the season with two weeks to go um that that was canceled and 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 that kind of thing went on not only in the southern conference but went on throughout yeah fcs at one level or another but we got to play seven games out of eight that were scheduled uh so there was some normal feeling to it but uh, yeah it was a little odd to be played in the spring especially when you're accustomed to calling baseball then well i imagine too when you when you look at that too from uh from a Furman perspective and what everything that they're having to kind of navigate and mix and match and again priority was making sure that these student athletes are taken care of they're healthy and protected as best that they can um because i don't think nobody had a clear map of how to navigate through this thing anyway um but i imagine there is uh you know did you get a kind of get a sense from any of the coaches or even the players that you know of of just you know okay this was this has been okay but let's let's just get back to Let's get back to summer summer workouts and get back into a fall mindset because of of, of the difference of the schedule and the timing and everything. I can only speak for the Furman coaches um, because I, I know that that publicly there were coaches at other schools who wanted no part of a uh, of a spring season. Right. And and one school in particular in the Southern Conference made it very clear that they were not going to play more than four games. And I, you know, I thought that the Southern Conference really, um, really should have come down on them that, hey, if you're a conference member, this is what we're going to do. And you're either going to do it or there are going to be consequences And the Southern Conference, for whatever reason, didn't do that. However, from a Furman standpoint, all I can tell you is that to a man from Clay Hendricks all the way down through the equipment managers, every player, every coach in between, they embraced the opportunity to play because they had had the football season taken away from them in the fall. And there were six seniors who delayed their graduation so they could play a spring season. And, and because of that, they went into it full bore enthused and excited about playing did not end up having the season that we thought they were going to have, obviously, but they at least had, a senior season for those people, those, those uh, six young men. And the bottom line is it's all in, you know, mentally how you address something. And and they addressed it from the standpoint that they were excited to play. They were looking forward to playing. They wanted to play and they were going to give it their best effort. And, and, you know, I applaud them for that because after everything they had gone through and, and, you know, I'm not, not saying anything bad about the teams that didn't want to play in the spring. Some of them opted out. Their schools chose not to play. Coaches didn't want to play, wanted to 
focus on the fall and and that's fine but as a league once you made that decision you're going to play then everybody's got to be on board and the southern conference did not um did not enforce that inside yeah. our league and in fact we knew we knew i knew personally uh three weeks ahead of time that chattanooga only wanted to play four games and and, and was was not going to play the opener that they were scheduled against vmi and, and the the fact that it was painted as as not having enough players for to play because of COVID issues was, was just a blatant lie. It, it simply was not true. Um, and then some similar shenanigans at the end of the season when Wofford opted out and some other things going on. But, you know, all I can control is if, <laughs> if, if Furman is scheduled to play at a certain date, I'm supposed to be behind the microphone and that's what I do. Yep. And, uh, and you do such a great job of it. And like I said, you've been doing this uh, in some form or fashion um, around, around these sports for, for quite some time. Tell me a little bit about um, how, how did you, uh, how did you get the initial itch uh, to get into this uh, line? Because you have to be passionate about it. You have to have a commitment of, uh, you know, very sincere investment in it because it's not the easiest, uh, (laughs) it's not the easiest vocation out there most times. And, and seasons have uh, ups and downs uh, in any sport, and and also the climate and the atmospheres that you work at also are not necessarily most pleasing sometimes. So, what what initially gave you the itch to uh, to get into this broadcasting thing? I was eight years old in 1975, Lee, when I, I fell in love with the Big Red Machine, the 1975 Cincinnati Reds, and. Uh, we, I grew up in West Virginia. We were four hours from Cincinnati. As I got older, that was pretty much our vacation every year. And that, that was the year that I started following baseball pretty much on a daily basis as an eight-year-old. And, and I, I turned on the radio, and there was this voice coming out of that box that was describing what was going on with this team that I loved. And that voice was Marty Brenneman, who uh, retired at the end of the 2019 season after 46 years behind the mic for the Reds. 1975 was his second season. That was the beginning for me. I I didn't really know it at the time, but that's that's when the hook uh, set for for you fishermen out there. (laughs) Uh, And then everything else has just been tugging on the line and reeling me in (laughs) the rest of rest of my life I, I i just found out early on that if i couldn't play sports that i wanted to broadcast it and um you know once my my high school and american legion baseball career was over that was my my intention to go to college and, and get a broadcast journalism degree that didn't work out and it's another story for another time i was a <laughs> preacher's preacher's kid turned loose on the world for the first time so my college career lasted exactly one semester <laughs> but I went back and, and got a job in December of 1985 at my hometown radio station and worked there for the next four years and, and got introduced to doing play-by-play there, doing high school football and basketball. And, you know, from the very first time I strapped the microphone on, I, I loved it. I was hooked and, and I knew exactly what I wanted to do. Even though I took a, a, a decade break where I was primarily a sports writer and sports editor, the love of radio never left me. The love of doing the play-by-play never left. Uh, and uh, I, I've been doing it pretty much full-time now, one way or another, since um, about 2000. So I, I'm, I'm very, very happy with the way things have gone. It's not a, not a business where if you're planning on getting rich, 
Um, you might want to look at something else. <laughs> True. Um, but but it's been it's been a business that's been able to provide a living for my family. Um, and, and you know it's got its ups and downs. It's got its frustrations. You know that just like every other job. Yep. But I always remind myself when I'm getting aggravated with something that's going on, whether it's, you know, office wise at Furman or whether it's something else. At the end of the day, I'm getting paid to watch a ball game. Right. And, and, you know, that's that's pretty cool. Tom Van Hoy always says that if if life is a department store, we work in the toy department. And uh, I've never forgotten that. I really haven't. <laughs> well, you know, I, I find it similar to, to you, maybe a little bit further along in my years, but, you know, I, my, my whole startup and anything related with sports media, um, I was a sophomore here at Abbeville, and um, Lane Stevenson, who uh, was a sound operator for our church here in town, um, just happened to uh, come up to me one Sunday and said, hey, new, new radio station owner here at WZLA, they want to do football on the radio. Do you want to do it with me? And I'm thinking, I'm, I'm a sophomore kid who hadn't been on a date yet, barely figuring out puberty, uh, but I love sports. But do, do, does anybody really truly want to hear or care about what I'm going to say about it? Uh, you know, it was it was kind of like a – it was a little bit of a hesitation, but at the same time it was like, oh, yeah, let's see what happens, you know, and – um, we started in 1992 and I'll never will forget, um, uh, Wayne shared, shared this with me and, uh, he had a conversation with, uh, the late great Carol Sexton, who was a longtime voice of Greenwood football and Carol basically gave him some of the simplest advice I've ever heard for any vocation. He said, uh, he said, listen, all you got to do is just tell people what you see. Just tell people what you see. Remember you're painting them a picture. You know, you, you don't have the downtime of a TV broadcast. So you're you're trying to give as much details as you can, but you're not trying to overwhelm anybody. And uh, you're trying to paint a picture and you want to you want to make a memory, uh, whatever that memory is, uh, whether it's a, a good play or a bad play. You want you want to make a memory. And so I remember him telling me that. And, and you know, I did 18 years uh, with him officially with the radio uh, doing color and stuff. And, and, and like you said, I mean, it's just, it was hard to imagine getting a paycheck for, for going out and just watching a football game, but, uh, man, it, it, it kind of got in my blood and I was away from it for a long time and thankfully was able to stay in connection with Benji here at WZLA and Abbeville. And, you know, now he's, he's kind of letting me stay involved and, and helping them out and doing some things and having a sports show and, you know, and being involved with the social media. So all these things that come from it, but, that it, it, there's just something about making those memories and, and you've had a chance to, to make a few memories uh, over these years. And uh, is that kind of something that you've taken away too, is just um, taking each moment, each game, one game at a time. Yeah. Especially as I get older, um, you, you know, I, I think that the natural instinct when you're young uh, is, is to a not sometimes appreciate the moment that you're talking about uh, and, and take for granted that it's always going to be there. And, and I have had enough instances in my career to understand now that you can't take it for granted and it's not always going to be there. Yep. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I do enjoy the moment and, you know, you, you get, you, you get into the grind, especially when you're doing, 
you know, minor league baseball, even though we don't travel um, with, with the Greenville drive, it, it still can be a grind. And, you know, one, one day leads to the next, the games are never short. Uh, that, that, that era of baseball is gone. So yeah. any, anything under three hours, Tom and I are ready to throw a celebration and shoot off fireworks. <laughs> but, you know, so it, 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 it can be a grind as the season goes on, but we have a great place to work maybe the best minor league park in all of America at floor field, which is a Fenway replica. And, and then you, you have games that come across, uh, come along once in a while, like last night um, when, when the drive was down five, nothing going to the bottom of the ninth inning, only had four hits the entire game and somehow rallied to score six runs wow. and, and win it on a walk-off walk of all things. Um, so it, it, it's, you know, it's like the, like the hack golfer, who, you know, is, is out spraying balls into the woods and, and into the into the drink and it's just ready to give up on the game. He says, I swear I'll never play this game again. And he steps up to the 17th tee and he hits the perfect drive right down the middle. And, and suddenly he's drawn right back into it. That, that That's kind of how it is sometimes in, in the situation uh, of, of doing – uh, you know, a, a day-to-day grind in broadcasting. Every now and again, something will come along to remind you exactly how special, you know, what you're doing really is. And from a collegiate standpoint, Lee, the other thing that I remind myself is being the director of broadcasting and play-by-play voice at Furman, which is a Division One school. There are only about 350 of those jobs in the entire country. Yep. Uh, so... Uh, I'm very, very blessed. And, and if you want to take it even further now with minor league baseball's reorganization, as far as organized minor league baseball goes, that's affiliated with the major leagues, there's only 120 of us. So it's even more exclusive. Yeah. So, again, I, I remind myself when I do get frustrated, when I do start to, to have those, you know, why am I doing this thoughts that, hey, at the end of the day, what you're doing is pretty special and, and, and just, you know, just have fun. I think that's the overlying thing that Tom and I have gotten to at this juncture of our careers, do the job and have fun doing it. Well, a lot of folks who are going to be listening to this uh, definitely got introduced to you uh, by, by your connection with, with working with Clemson university uh, for the years that you did. And uh, talk to me a little bit about how, how you got connected with them and, and some of the takeaways you had from from that process, because uh, you know that it was kind of an interesting time frame when you were, you know, covering them exclusively in, mm-hmm. in a lot of the sports. Um, a lot of a lot of ups and downs and questions and and, and craziness. Uh, it seems like in a lot of things. So, uh, how, how did you get connected with Clemson when you got started there? My wife and I were living in Cincinnati, and at the time she was in retail management. She was uh, with the uh, Target Corporation. And she got offered the opportunity to come to, to the upstate and open the, the first target that was here uh, in 1999. And, and that's the one on Woodruff Road. Wow. And she had family in this area. And we had been moving around quite a bit with me being in the media, her being in retail management. We seems like we were somewhere about every 18 months. And she was, she was, making more money than I was at the time. So obviously this was a career move we had to make. And, and I kept thinking to myself, what in the world am I going to do in Clemson, South Carolina? 
<laughs> the, o- the, only, the only thing that I knew about Clemson was that they had won a national championship in 1981. In 1989, they beat up on my West Virginia Mountaineers in a bowl game. <laughs> and, and I had remembered the Sports Illustrated story talking about the Tiger Paws on the road leading into Death Valley. And when we came down here, the first time I came here, I think it was 1980, 1989, my wife and I, before we were married, we came down to visit family. I made her take me out there so I could see those tiger paws. Yeah. But when it came time to move, I'm like, okay, what in the world am I going to do in Clemson, South Carolina? Well, as it turned out, the first thing I was able to do was get a job at the newspaper in Seneca, which was getting ready to transition from a three-day-a-week to a five-day-a-week daily newspaper so i I got i got a job there ended up being the sports editor there for two years and a a brief stand as the managing editor and during my time there i started listening to this this sports station out of clemson wccp uh, which at the time was was owned by george clement and was run by a, a gentleman named tommy powell and i got to be friendly with tommy I uh, would call into his show a couple of times and, and got to talking to him one day and and uh, said, hey, you know, I'd, I'd like to try my hand at Sports Talk. And and he said, fine. He said, uh, we'll do something weekly. And he gave me probably the absolute worst time slot that you could get noon to two on a Sunday. Oh, man. <laughs> and uh, but, you know, I did that. And I did that for a little over a year. And during the time I was there, started filling in for some other people when they would go on vacation or get sick or whatever. And, and uh, in February of 2001, that, that weekly show started in November of 99, February of 2001, about 14 months later, um, I was given the, at that time, 10 to noon daily slot. It became nine to noon shortly thereafter. And I did that for uh, about three weeks shy of 11 years before that came to an end. Yeah. And uh, so I arrived at Clemson and started working, covering Clemson first at the newspaper the same year Tommy Bowden got here. So I was here for Tommy Bowden's entire career. Um, I got my introduction to Clemson baseball uh, first as a sports writer and and then started broadcasting in in 2005. And, um, you know, that that the the rest is is kind of history. It, It was because of my association with WCCP that's kind of led me to where I am right now. Every good thing that's happened to me in my broadcast career since the year 1999 is because of my association and my time at the Clemson radio station. It did not end the way I wanted it to. Uh, A good deal of that was my fault. Um, But uh, looking back on it now, uh, I've got nothing but love for the people, love for my time there. And that's what sets really everything in motion that's led me to where I am now. I did Clemson baseball and women's basketball for seven years. I got the chance in the fall of 2011 to take over as the number one guy at Furman, chance to do uh, football collegiately for the first time. And uh, this fall, God willing, will be my 11th year behind the mic for Furman University. So, uh, and, and, and beginning my sixth year as the director of broadcasting, uh, at Furman. So I'm, I'm extremely blessed. Uh, it was, as you said, a very interesting time frame 
from 99 to 2011 uh, with with Clemson, just speaking of football alone, yeah. watching watching Tommy Bowden come in there and 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 really really tick off Clemson people <laughs> from, from, from and I'm, I'm being serious from the yeah. very beginning when he started telling them how substandard their facilities were yeah and, and how they they needed to put to make a financial commitment and to seriously upgrade their facilities and Clemson people are like what are you talking about we won a national championship here what have you done you know but right. the more the more he talked and the more they investigated and Florida State was dominating the ACC at that time and, and started comparing Clemson's facilities to his father's facilities down in, in Tallahassee, Clemson people began to understand that they were in a facilities arms race at the NCAA level. And if they wanted to compete at the highest level, they were going to have to get off their duff and make some changes. And and Tommy was the 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 um springboard for all that you know they broke ground in 2005 on on the west end zone project and and um so that that was kind of the the thing that got the ball rolling you know he never had more than a nine win season and, and i think he took the program as far as he could take it but the flip side of it is i don't think he'll ever get the credit he deserves for laying the foundation that Dabo sweeney came in and built on you know, to just a ridiculously incredible and successful degree and, and is continuing to do so. But I just don't think that Tommy's ever going to get the credit he deserves because he's the one who dragged Clemson football and, and maybe by extension all of Clemson athletics out of the 1980s and said, hey, you can't just rest on that single single national championship anymore. There are things that have to be done if you want to be successful uh, at the highest level. And, and he was the one who started all that. Yeah, and, and even in the sense like you're talking about resting on on the past and everything, and and just getting into some sort of understanding. Because I remember even in 2011 uh, when they won the ACC championship, I, you know, I just remember I was like, you know, we need to win an ACC championship again. You know, let's <laughs> we we need to win. We need to get into that conversation again as a Clemson fan. That was my mindset because everything was just about, you know, all these other excuses over things that, you know, were kind of out of our control. But I, I totally agree with you. I don't think that Clemson is where they're at from a program or facility standpoint without Tommy Bowden coming in there and rocking the boat, which is exactly – I felt like Clemson wanted to have – they were like the master puppeteer and they, they wanted to control the strings and – uh, they were a little, little afraid of the rebellious teenager coming in, but you know, sometimes, every once in a while, the rebellious kids they got a little bit of wisdom that we need to take a hold of, and uh, he did that, and, and and you know, they're fixing to, I think, even uh, do some more up there and, and closing the the area around the hill with some end zone stands there to really kind of box in the noise there. So, I mean, that doesn't happen if he doesn't uh, rock the boat there. So, I imagine that was uh, definitely, uh, you know interesting to cover from a media perspective uh, because of the, the opinions that are out there, but you talked about doing uh, the baseball and stuff. Um, what was it like covering uh, the, the, the time there with Jack Leggett in, in the years with Clemson baseball? I loved it. I, I really did. Um, Jack is, is the type of person or, or at least was as a coach where he's, he's very protective of his, of his program. And, and when an outsider comes in, he's a little suspicious and you kind of have to earn, his respect 
Um, but I think I was able to do that. Uh, and, and during the seven years that I was part of the, the broadcast there uh, up until I left to go to Furman, um, we had developed a really, really good relationship. And, and, and I really admire him. I, I really do. Was he perfect? No, nobody's perfect. But the, 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 the way that he took the foundation that Bill Wilhelm had laid and, and built it to where he had built it and what he had done with it, um, what was just phenomenal. And, and this is a personal, personal opinion. I know everybody has, has their own and, and um, a lot of people don't agree with me, but I thought that, that Clemson did him a great disservice. I thought that he, that with everything that he had done for that program, that the fact that, that he raised all the money uh, and, and oversaw all the construction for that, that new Hall of Fame and, and players' lounge and locker room and everything that's along the, the first base and right field side now and never got a chance to use it as a head coach, never yes. got a chance to recruit to it, never got a chance to do anything uh, with it. I, I thought that was a crime. I, I thought he was done dirty. Um, I, he should have been given an opportunity to, to use that um, because, you know, I was there when I first got here. They were obviously riding high. Um, they went to the College World Series in 2000, went in 2002, and this is just in my time here. And then in, in 2003 and 2004, they had a couple of down seasons and by Clemson standards. Yeah. Still, still went to the NCAA tournament, but by Clemson standards, had a couple of down seasons. I saw him negotiate his way through that. He had a recruiting class for 2005 that was led by three guys named Taylor Harbin, Brad Chalk, and Stan Whitman that turned the fortunes of the program around. They went back to the College World Series in 2006 uh, and a, a Super Regional appearance in, in 2007, Super Regionals in 2005 as well, the, the freshman year. 2008 is the year that they missed the college, the NCAA tournament for the first time in, what was it, 30-some years? Yeah. Um, and but then bounced right back in 2009, went to a super regional out in Arizona uh, against Arizona State, uh, and in 2010 went back to the College World Series again. So I had seen him negotiate dips in the program and, and then be able to bring it back. So, you know, 2011 they were a prohibitive favorite uh, at home in the NCAA regional, lost that regional to Connecticut, which had a guy named George Springer. Uh, in the lineup, among others, and, and, you know, didn't make it out of the NCAA uh, first round, I think, his next three years. And that's when Dan Radakovich decided to make a change. Well, what's happened since? They still haven't made it out of a first round of an NCAA tournament. And this past year, they didn't make the yep. NCAA tournament. Yep. Um, and and that's, that's, not a, that's not a shot at Monty Lee. Those are just facts. Yep. Uh, I personally believe, knowing what I know about Jack Leggett, that had they allowed him the opportunity to reap the benefits of, of everything that he had built with that new addition to the facility, knowing what I know and seeing what he had done in the past, that he would have elevated Clemson baseball right back to where it was. And, and I just thought that in, in the grand scheme of things, him not getting the chance to do that with everything that he had done was a crime. Yeah. Well, you know, and definitely in the sense that, uh, you know, like you talk about with, you know, it's just so it's just so amazing. Not only football and baseball being so different as sports, 
But um, I imagine, <laughs> you know, and I, I know this because I've done it, you know, calling a football game, following a football program's quote-unquote story as they go through a, a season is, is so much different than, than doing baseball. But I imagine with baseball, it really does kind of sharpen you maybe more so than even football because football is so quick, so much going on. You got a lot of information you got to try to squeeze in. You got sponsorships and tags and this and that and stats. With baseball, you have so much time, even though there is days where you just wish, like, is this game ever going to end? Well, you have time to build stories and, and build and, and build on, on on a team and individual players. Do you kind of get that sense as you cover baseball over the years? Like, you know, you get to paint a very broad, bigger picture, but you get to fill out the specifics a lot more because you just have that time. Well, you know, I, I'd even argue that you have a lot of time in football because of all the time you have between plays. Uh, it's not it's not like basketball where the action is continuous. If you're if you're you know, a color commentator on radio and basketball, you don't say a whole lot. Yeah. Um, in fo- football, you have time to do so. Be- baseball, though, you're right, is is the, the sport with the the most quote unquote time to kill, and I. I believe that baseball is the hardest sport to do well because of that. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's why the great ones, and, and I'm speaking strictly from a radio standpoint because television, the, the picture, uh, picture tells the story on radio. The broadcaster has to be the picture. The play by play guy has to paint the picture. Right. And there's, there's, there's so much more to keeping the broadcast rolling and making it smooth and, and, and keeping the interest of the people who are listening, it takes a lot more effort. It takes a lot more um, preparation and, and, and it takes a bit of storytelling ability, quite honestly. Yeah. And, and so I, I think that doing baseball on the radio well is the hardest thing to do from a broadcast standpoint. Um, and, and the ones who can do it well, that's that's why they're great. Now I mentioned Marty Brenneman, Ben Scully, uh, who's probably considered to be the the best that's ever done it, um, and and so many other guys down through the years who have gained legendary status and deservedly so because of their ability to keep an audience mesmerized. And um, it's a it's a talent that I appreciated very early on, as I said when I started listening to Marty Brenneman in his second year. And, and he captivated this eight-year-old kid. And I listened to him for 45 of the 46 years he was in Cincinnati. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I think to your point, you know, whether it's following a storyline or, or whatever, I, I think you can do that with any team that you cover on a regular basis because you have a more intimate knowledge than if you're just doing like a game of the week and seeing sure. somebody different every week. Um, anytime that you're the broadcaster for a team, you're going to gain that knowledge and gain that insight. Uh, but you can't just rest on that. You still have to do your work. You still have to do your prep. You still have to have a, a, a backlog of, of information that you're ready to go to. Um, and quite honestly, it's easy. It, it's, it's easy to do a game or an inning like we did last night in the bottom yeah. of the ninth inning. Because something's happening, the drama's building. You can, you 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 can paint that picture and allow just what's happening on the field itself 
the action to be what you draw from. Yeah. The, the toughest games to do are really what maybe the eight and a half innings were before that when it was five, nothing. And you only have, yeah. four, you only have four hits through the first yeah. eight innings. Uh, and, and, and now you've got to find a way to keep your listener engaged, even though for the most part, it looks like it's not going to be your night uh, as a Greenville drive fan or as an Abbeville Panther fan or, or whatever. Um, that that's where the great ones are really great. They, they, they can, they can keep you interested and engaged in a nine, nothing blowout as well as they can in a two to one game bases loaded bottom of the ninth inning, two outs, three and two count on the hitter. That that's, that's the talent of the really, really fantastic, great radio baseball play-by-play guys. Well, I want to go back a little bit and talk to you in a sense from something that I've, I've kind of been slowly learning the last couple of years. And uh, I've always uh, enjoyed sports talk radio. I've enjoyed listening to it, being a part of it from a college perspective and now being able to do a little bit of it uh, with my own gig. Um, (laughs) The one thing about it is so funny. Um, You you talk about taking steps of faith, (laughs) maybe no more so in in sports radio, because you never know what callers are going to bring to the table, whether they're bringing more information, whether they're bringing questions or whether they're just bringing something that leaves you kind of dumbfounded. Uh, I know you probably had a few of those phone calls during that era, (laughs) during that time working your radio show oh let me let me tell you <laughs> it's, it's unbelievable the the early days i i did a uh, for about four or five years in fact i i did a post-game football call-in show after the network went off the air at clemson and it was the first or second year and and i still remember what the guy called himself he called himself agent orange <laughs> and it, it was I think it was after a Clemson, South Carolina game. And he, he actually said he hated South Carolina so much that he would rather see the Gamecocks lose than Clemson win. Now think about that for a minute. This is a Clemson yeah. fan. <laughs> that, that he hates the opposition so much that it's okay if his team loses just as long as they lose. And, and, and that was, that was one of those moments where I, I realized, you know, you'd always heard the, I'd always heard the phrase that football was a religion in the South. And, and I used to tell people I'd always heard that, but I didn't realize how often the church doors were open. (laughs) And, and that was one of those moments that, okay, this is a little different. You know, this, this is a little over the edge. Um, and, And yeah, there were, there, there were several of those moments uh, over the years, but that, that's, that's really kind of the first one. Yeah. And, 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 you know, 20 years later, it still, it still <laughs> sticks out to me because I, I'm just, I was trying to wrap my head around the logic of that. I mean, I, I'm a, I'm a Cincinnati Reds fan and I, I, I can't stand the Atlanta Braves, which made for some good radio when I was on the air <laughs> in, in, in the upstate, but you know, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that I hate the Braves so much that as long as they lose, I don't care if the Reds win. The Reds yeah. winning are the most important thing in, in that sports fandom, regardless of what the Braves do or not do. Uh, so I was just trying to wrap my head around that logic, and that was really the first moment when I realized that, you know, that, that, that there's something wrong with these people. 
but, but and, and I mean that obviously in, 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 in a great way, because there's something wrong with me too, because, <laughs> I, because of what I do and, and how long I've been doing it. So, but yeah, yeah, that, that was kind of the first one that I remember <laughs> still stands out all this time later. Well, I can't tell you how tickled I was and humbled and honored I was to find out from Benji uh, that you were going to be able to uh, to be a part of the WZLA family and uh, contribute some some more sports talk to us um, and, and just getting 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 the ball thrown to you from Dan Scott for me was <laughs> has been very 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 awesome for me. So I just wanted to personally tell you thank you for that and. And thank you for uh, being a part of the family, but also just uh, continuing to do that and, and how much I've enjoyed and respected what you did. I want to kind of turn a little bit of a script here um, and talk a little bit about your faith. I know faith plays a big part of who you are now and plays a big part into your story, not so much from the sports world, but also just in the personal walk and everything. And and, and a lot of people who may be listening don't know a lot about your story. And I, I know we don't probably have – a lot of time to get into all the details, but I was wanting to see if you could share a little bit about that, that faith journey and, and, and where God has brought you to, because uh, um, I, I love seeing you uh, share the gospel, be about the gospel and, and shine that light. So tell us a little bit about that. Well, you know, I, I'm, it starts with the, the fact that, that uh, I'm a preacher's kid, which you know, people who've known me all my life, it probably doesn't surprise them. Um, but you know, my dad um, pastored the same church for 37 years, and and is actually now back and and, and pastoring it again. Uh, at, you know, nine years after he retired, um, so you know he's he's been in the ministry for 51, 52 years now. Just an incredible guy. Wow. And I, um, so I, I was I was raised in, in that kind of home. Uh, I I was, and and this is part of the story. Uh, because it, it helps explain kind of the, the mental frame of mind that I was in when I was young, somewhere between, I don't know, seven, eight, nine, ten years old. Uh, I was sexually abused on a semi-regular basis by a, a group of older boys that, that lived in the area where my grandmother did across the river in Kentucky. Um, and, you know, it was it was found out somebody found out about it and, and thank God stepped up and, and told my parents and, and it, a, a stop was put to it. Uh, and I never really thought that it affected me that much because, you know, after my, after my parents, my dad specifically told me, you know, hey, it's not your fault. This is what sex is supposed to be. You know, gave me the talk and, um, and then just kind of let me go on and be a, a, a normal quote unquote, little boy, never realized the, uh, the effect that it had on me, but it it played into some serious insecurity that, that I had anyway. And so growing up, um, in in that Christian home environment, you know, I was a, I was a good kid. I very rarely got in trouble. I, I got in really in major trouble once as a senior, when my friend and I discovered uh, Sun Country wine coolers, um, <laughs> which is another story that I'm not proud of, but uh, it just tells you how far how far back I go. You could buy those in two liter bottles, like you can uh, Coke and Pepsi now. Yeah. Um, but uh, in, in, anyway, to, you know, kind of get back on track. I, I, I just had a, dealt with a lot of insecurity, 
and I, I developed a dual personality basically uh, that I carried through all the way up until about nine years ago. And, and that was, and I always, always equate it to the uh, Hawkeye Pierce character on MASH, which was my favorite TV show that, you know, he was, he was loud, wisecracking, the practical joker, uh, and did that in, in a sense to keep people from getting too close to right. keep from getting inside. So you, to me, you had Dan Scott, the public persona, and then you had Daniel who was behind the scenes kind of, not kind of was, was seriously struggling with some things and, and fighting some demons. And, you know, I've been, I've been really open about it. It's, it's part of my testimony and you have to be careful cause I don't want to, don't want to glorify the sin. Right. But it's important for me to tell people who I was so they know where God has brought me from. And it's a miracle only he could have done. And, you know, I, for the first 22 years of my marriage, Lee, I was, you know, I love my wife. I love my kids, but I, I was searching for something. Right. I was searching for something to fill a hole in my heart. And I tried it all, man. I tried alcohol. I tried sex, cheated on my wife, unfortunately, um, uh, emotionally and physically numerous times. I tried pornography. Uh, which was a huge issue for me for a long time. Um, and it, it was just leading me down a, a, a path of destruction. And, you know, long story short, uh, and, and it, it first blew up in December, December 23rd, 2011, when my double life was exposed and <clears throat> continued on for the next six months before it finally blew up again on June 9th of 2012, you know, when, in, in 2011, when it happened, I was sorry, I got caught Yeah. Uh, and, and pretended to be doing things to try to rectify the situation. Um, but on, on June 9th, 2012, when it blew up again and my kids had left the house, they were disgusted with me. Um, I realized, you know, you're about to lose everything. I'd already lost a job at CCP. I'd lost the Clemson baseball job. And now you're about to lose your family. And the entire time, all this is going on over the years, I had this little voice in the back of my head, you know, and, and the Bible is always correct. It's always correct. And in Proverbs, it says, train up a child in the way he should go. And when he gets old, he won't depart from it. All the time that I was being a fool, I knew I was wrong. And I had that little voice in the back of my head. I had another voice in the back of my head, too, was my dad saying, you know better. Mm. Um, but finally, you know, thank God that, that he pursued me and he started taking things away from me, like I said, to get my attention. Uh, and, and when just past my ninth anniversary of my salvation, my ninth spiritual birthday, June 10th of, of 2012, I finally cast everything aside and gave my life to the Lord. And, and I, I can say without hesitation, it's absolutely the best decision that I ever made. Yeah. You know, um, the things that I was trying to fill that hole with, you know, and I didn't mention money. I was terrible with money. Um, it turned out it was a Jesus shaped hole in my heart. Yeah. And, and once he came in, then I had that, that peace and, and that joy and that fulfillment that I'd never had before. 
And, and, you know, I always tell people when I share my testimony, I don't want you to get the idea that when I gave my life to Christ, that was the beginning or that was the end of all my troubles because it wasn't, you know, Satan doesn't like to lose one. And he, he worked hard on me and he still works hard on me. Um, you know, he knows my weak points. He knows what to tempt me with. Um, and, and, and so it's been, it's been, been a battle, you know, and, and, and having to, to learn that it's not a battle that I can win humanly. Yeah. That I have to let Jesus fight it for me. I have to fight it within the framework of the Holy Spirit and, and, and do that. And, and so, you know, nine years later, is everything in my life perfect? No. But my relationship, my relationships with my daughters have been restored. My marriage is stronger than it's ever been. My wife and I are so much on the same page now. It's ridiculous. And, and that came about because I finally started being the biblical husband and father that we're commanded to be. So, I mean, especially in the last three or four years where our relationship has gone is it, just incredible. And it's 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 the only credit, all the credit goes to, to Christ because I've, I've, I've submitted myself to him and his leadership and, and the, the way that a Bible, the Bible lays out how a man is supposed to take care of his family and is supposed to lead his family and is supposed to, to do everything that, that the way that God has laid out when he gave Adam the responsibility way back in the Garden of Eden. That's when our relationship really strengthened to the point that it is now. And it's all, it's all God. It's all Christ. It, it, it's nothing that I've done other than finally totally submitting myself to him. And, and um, you know, I, I tell people all the time when I share my testimony, I got to speak at my home church back in, in West Virginia back in, uh, in March, which was really a, just a wonderful moment for me with my dad pastoring there again. And, and I told the young people who were there, I said, you know, if, if anybody tells you when you get saved that all your problems are going to go away, you're not going to be tempted by sin anymore. You're not going to have any money issues. You're not going to be ridiculed. You're not going to be persecuted. Then they're preaching a false gospel. Yeah. You know, we have too many prosperity gospel preachers out there now that are leading people down a path of destruction. Yeah. And I, I tell them that nowhere in the Bible does it say that your life is going to be easy. In, in fact, John 16, 33, Jesus told his disciples, in this world, you will have tribulation. He didn't say you might. He didn't say you could. He didn't say it's possible. He said you will have tribulation. But then the last line of that verse says, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. So that's the promise that I cling to. <coughs> Excuse me. That's um, that's kind of the Cliff Notes version of yeah. where I came from and, and where I am right now. And Lee, I'll just say this. I love sharing my testimony. So for anybody listening to your podcast, if you, if you have a, a church or a men's group and you'd like to hear it in more detail and, and some of the things yeah. that I've learned along the way uh, about being a true biblical man, uh, and it's nothing that I've done. Again, it, it's, it's all God. But I would love to come and share that testimony or, or speak to those groups. And all you have to do is, is get in touch with me and, and uh, ask me and, and I'd be more than happy to do it. That's awesome. It's, a, it's such a testimony in itself of, of being able to find that, um, you know, find that peace 
in a sense, because, you know, the one thing I, that I've learned even here recently, just with losing my mom and, you know, I've, I've always grown up on the understanding that God's peace is a peace that passes all understanding and that that true peace that we get uh, through the tough times, through the challenges, through the storms, through the trials, um, there is nothing like God's peace. Um, there, there is no satisfaction that anything or any person can bring that is even close to it. And when you find that peace and when you're able to embrace it, and it's almost kind of like uh, even going back to the old, the old school reference of when the chains fall off, um, you know, you know, I love that tag that, that so eloquently was put to a great hymn, but my chains are gone. I've been set free. And when you're finally set free of those, those things that have been holding you down and you're able to take those steps with Jesus in a different mindset, uh, it's not about religion or status. It's about personal relationship, intimate relationship with God. And as you said, what, what we're incredibly missing so much here in today's society and culture, and I see this from a student ministry perspective uh, weekly, is, is the lack of spiritual leadership from, from adults, parents, husbands, fathers. Um, th- there's too much of a slap on the wrist culture now, too much of a, um, you know, it, it'll all be okay one day mindset. You know, we just, we just, we're, we're coming through a worldwide pandemic and going through the adjustment of having to do without things normalcy. And, and if you, if you come out of this thing the same way that you entered it, then something's wrong. I don't care who you are, what, what your race is, what your, your, your beliefs are or anything. I mean, you got to come out of this different. And especially from a spiritual standpoint, I found such joy in strengthening my spiritual perspective because little did I know that coming out of one storm from a vocational standpoint, I went to another storm with a personal standpoint, losing my mom and, and that process of, of a month and a half of just saying goodbye. And uh, you have to, I mean, you have to be prepared in season and out, no doubt about it. And uh, I just appreciate you being willing to share a little bit of that and definitely encourage anybody who's listening that they, uh, they want to see or hear that. I know you have it on social media and documented and, and whatnot. And definitely if anybody would love to get you in and I know several, several folks that would love to, to, to hear that, that story, because there's a lot of people, you know, one thing about men, you know, we're, you know, we're brisky and we're, we're proud and we launch our shoulders back and, you know, men, men are probably the most fragile most days than people realize with stuff that they deal with. So. Yeah. yeah um, and, and, you know, there, there are some stats out there and, and I don't have them right in front of me right now, but there, there are some stats out there where if, if the father comes to Christ first, yeah. the, the, the rest of the family coming to Christ, it, it's, it's, you know, in, in the high eighties, low 90% chance that it's going to happen. If the mother comes to Christ first, that drops significantly. And if a child comes to Christ first, it's it's even lower than that. But that tells you how God works because the first Christian in our family was my youngest daughter. Yeah. She 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 became a Christian when she was, I don't know, eight years old back in two thousand and three. Uh, and um that that led to first my wife becoming saved and, and then and then me, uh, you know, nine years, nine years ago. Um, so you know, God can defy statistics, as we know. But, you know, the, the, the bottom line is men have been given a great responsibility uh, and, and and by and large, 
we, we have failed in that responsibility. Um, I, I'll, I'll say this, and then if, if you need to wrap it up, you can. I, I was listening to Tony Evans not too long ago in his Kingdom Men Rising series, and he said something that I never thought about. Before God gave Adam a wife, he gave him a job to do and a house to keep. Right. He, he put him in the Garden of Eden to take care of it. And he gave him the job of, of tending that and, and naming all the animals. And then he gave him Eve. So what does that teach us? That he gave man responsibility and only inside that responsibility are you going to be able to take care of a family. Right. Um, and, and I'd never looked at it that way before. Uh, and and, and that, that has really stuck with me. That was a, a really profound moment for me. And... Um, yeah, if uh, if anybody out there would, I mean, I've got it on social media. I've got it where people can listen to past talks, but I love coming and engaging with audiences personally. So uh, if anybody if anybody wants to get in touch with me, probably the easiest way to do it uh, is via email. Uh, show at gmail.com would be the easiest one. show at gmail.com. Just drop me an email. Uh, or you can get in touch with Lee. He's got my phone number, and he, you can shoot me a text. Whatever it takes. Sure. Would love to do it. Well, I'll tell you what, man. I've enjoyed the conversation and, and getting to know you a little bit more and, and uh, again, being able to have a connection with you now and, and being able to uh, uh, to talk and lean on and, and just appreciative of that. And, hey, we're going to have to get together again here when we get close to football season. We'll have – We'll probably sure have plenty of storylines coming up. A lot of yeah. stuff changing in college football. So I definitely want to talk to you about that. But man, thank you so much for giving me the time, Dan, and uh, praying for you and your family as you continue to uh, to grow and walk in this journey uh, and with the Lord and and continue doing something that I I, I hold you in high regards. That man, you are the best. Well, I appreciate that, Lee. You're you're far too kind, and and I'm just waiting on the name, image, likeness legislation for broadcasters. Uh, <laughs> That's right. Probably probably not coming anytime soon. I've enjoyed it, though. Thanks for having me. All right, Dan. We'll talk to you soon, man. All right, that's Dan Scott. He is uh, he's one of the best, one of the best in, in sports media uh, in all forms and platforms. Hope you guys have enjoyed this uh, podcast interview. Make sure you like it, share it, pass it around. I'm sure a lot of people are going to get a lot out of this, not only from sports talk, but also from a faith journey talk as well. And I appreciate Dan joining me. This has been LWE Lee Collins with another edition of the LWE Podcast. We'll be talking to you guys soon. God bless.